You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash nextbigtrade to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on demand platform you can watch anywhere. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash nextbigtrade and use promo code NBT20 to get 20% off our plus membership for your first year. Here's what's coming up on this edition of Next Big Trade. Enjoy the show. Whenever the economy had a little threat, the Fed stepped in, rate cuts, expanded the money supply. By that process, the Fed stepped in and it enabled legislatures to not have to make the really difficult decisions that they should have been making. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Next Big Trade. I'm your host, Harry Malandri from MI2 Partners. On this program, I'll talk to some of the world's foremost traders about current trends in markets and what they believe is a smart bet. We'll hear about their career journeys and, of course, find out what they're targeting as their next big trade. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the next big trade and thanks for joining us. This week, I have the privilege of speaking to Rob Duggar, uh, the founder of the Hanover Investment Group and co-founder of Ready Nation. Ready Nation is a non-profit which helps bring quality uh, early care and education to millions of disadvantaged American kids. Uh, Rob started his career in the Federal Reserve System, then worked with the Resolution Trust Corporation, resolving the SNL crisis or helping helping with the resolution of the SNL crisis. And from 92 to 2009... Rob was a partner and ran the DC policy office of the Tudor Investment Corporation. That's Paul Tudor Jones' eponymous hedge fund. All this is to Rob's credit. And then he had to spoil it all by hanging around with bad influences like me. How's it going, Rob? How are you? Uh, it's really great, <laughs> Harry. And uh, no, hanging out with you is not uh, not one of the negative experiences I've had uh, at, at I, all. I, I always uh, think you, you lie so well. <laughs> well I, you, you left out the part where I learned to lie, which was I worked in the House and Senate banking committees during the 1980s, both House and Senate, and um, ran the monetary policy oversight hearing. So I got very, very acquaint- well acquainted and thereby learned to say lots of things which were nice, but maybe not quite true. You see, but the thing about a podcast is no one can see how, how perfectly Rob's poker face remains in place. There's absolutely no sign. You can't tell yeah. anything from, from, the, from the expression. So um, usually we talk a little bit about things which have people's attention other than their investment thesis. Um, Is there anything in the news right now that you're studying quite closely that's caught your attention other than the investment thesis? Uh, The the news that I see that interests me most, and, and it has investment implications, but more it has historic implications. We're going through a, a process of uh, global disaggregation that has parallels to the late 1920s and the early 1930s in terms of the degree to which previous relationships are being pulled apart. 
Now, the deglobalization, you, you see it all around you, don't mm -hmm. you? You really yeah, do. Yeah, people think of it in terms of uh, physical terms, the delivery of goods and services, or the, you know, the microchip they can't put it in the car so they can't make the car or sell the car. But actually, that's just the surface. The, the underlying problem is a disaggregation that is uh, societal and um, uh, undermines a, a global gov governance capability. You know, I uh, I read way too much propaganda for my own good. Mm -hmm. um, I should really stick to the the hair uh, treatment uh, adverts. I also scan occasionally, um, which I definitely need. You know, but um, but I do read some of this propaganda. And one of the stuff things I was reading about recently was a push by uh, the Russian Federation and the Iranians. So that's the modern axis of evil, if you like, mm -hmm. uh, to create a trade zone across their territory. They were thinking of a new north-south route, which would make it possible to move hydrocarbons to the south and into India and to move other, you know, tr manufactured goods from China through the Middle East, even if you couldn't move them from Russia. The, the new trade routes seem to be being established, and that I, I can't help but think that's kind of important. Oh, it's it's it's, it's got to be very important. These what we're what we're seeing in this breakdown of previous relationships is a is the formation of new relationships, and it's it's not at all clear. Uh, how advanced economies are prepared for these, the deterioration of old relationships and the establishment of new relationships. Yeah, that's a constant theme. The U.S.-Iranian relationship started to go to bad in 1951 when we participated with the British in assassinating their first democratically elected leader. Uh, Mossadegh, I never know how you pronounce his name, yeah. Uh, and they never, no one ever lets that go, do they? You make a couple of small mistakes and they, they just insist on holding it against you forever. It's ridiculous. Some people. I know. It's like maybe if, if the British had killed George Washington, we'd still be angry about you, that. You know, he, he didn't get great reviews from his British officers when he served with the, um, with the, the Her Majesty's Armed Forces. Mm -hmm. So perhaps if they'd given him a better performance assessment, things would have worked out totally yeah, different. History would have gone in a different direction. So let's talk about your investment uh, thesis, uh, the, you know, the, the, the way you're looking at the world and what, what you'd recommend or recommend is the wrong phrase, but you're, the way you're analyzing it. Tell us about the next big trade, Rob. Uh, for me, the next big trade is simple. You've got to be short equities. The, Analytical community hasn't brought down the uh, earnings forecast uh, to be, to realistic levels. Uh, you've got to be prepared to be getting long uh, uh, treasury securities, other government debt. Um, there is a, a point at which capital will be leaving the equity markets and risk markets and going and seeking safety wherever it can find it. So um, when we look back at the 1930s or other major points in time, we see risk assets turn down, then safe assets begin to begin to rise. And there's generally a three to six month lag. But a key the key thing is that is that in this is understanding that this downturn is different from previous downturns, 2008, 2000, uh, 2000, 1992, 1980, 1974. It is different from those kinds of stock market downturns in many important ways. None of those had uh, in them 
these fundamental existential threats from climate change, sea level rise, droughts, fires, that's on the climate side. And in addition, we have on the governance side, uh, gridlock, uh, legislative uh, inability to uh, change course in significant ways in every every developed economy. So why uh, uh, what we're, we, we're seeing is the inability of societies to alter their uh, uh, fundamental economic strategies in ways that would enable them to restore productivity and restore economic growth. A key fault in this, I'll say, that's not being talked about except among a few at this point, is the role of the central bank in abetting the process of government gridlock. For decades, the Fed has stepped in and filled the potholes of economic growth. Whenever the economy had a little threat, uh, a downturn, uh, 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 whether it's uh, the 1998 uh, Asian currency crises or LTCM, the Fed stepped in, rate cuts, expanded the money supply, or basically engaging in QE in the overnight market uh, in those early days, um, cutting rates, flooding the market with, and, and supporting asset prices. By that process, year uh, incident after incident, whether it was in the 90s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, the 2010s, the Fed stepped in and it enabled legislatures to not have to make the really difficult decisions that they should have been making. In the U.S., we did, we've done very little about climate. We uh, underinvested or didn't invest at all in infrastructure in the ways we should have. We did not really have a healthcare system ready for a COVID-type crisis. And U.S. education levels, which used to be in the top five in the world, are now down in the in the lower 20s in the world. So we've, in in terms of human capital, we've invested like we did in infrastructure, which was a combination of not at all or badly. Um, the the uh, political system in the United States is no longer able to work together to make the tough decisions that have to be made, and that those include decisions about. Uh, rightful taxation. Um, why can they get away with this? Because they can always depend on a friendly Federal Reserve chairman, whether it is uh, Greenspan or Yellen or now Powell, to uh, effectively um, uh, ease them out of their responsibilities, bring the economy back up, but mainly bring up the asset levels of what the middle and upper income households are investing in. As a consequence, because we were steadily eroding the economic strength of the country by its underinvestment in all things that uh, truly mattered, we have significant, in essence, hidden liabilities, which uh, now are integral parts of the downturn that we're now involved in. You know, I I share a lot of your concerns and a lot of the analysis. Um, it makes sense to me. I can't help but think that the underlying problem is those damn Russians. The collapse of the Soviet Union took away the only force that was keeping uh, the U.S. nomenclatura, the elites in the U.S., yes. honest. And once you took them away, there was no reason to allocate capital and resources efficiently. 
You had no- nothing forcing you to to think about the threat from external. So you only have domestic objectives, no external objectives, no external pressures. It's very easy to say, you know what? Why not make a lot of money? We can. Mm-hmm. And the um, easy way to do that, particularly with an accommodative Federal Reserve, making it easy for everybody, um, is to financialize. And the American economy financialized over a four-decade period to the point now where it is uh, really the financial sector that drives everything. And because the financial asset prices are so inflated, the correction that's necessary and unavoidable will be larger than people thought in the past and last longer than people thought in the past. You're quite right about when you remove that external, very clear external competitive presence, um, you get lazy and you begin to do things the easy way. And the Federal Reserve stood ready to let you do it. And in fact, because it enhanced their reputation, their position in society, they were the sort of the new masters of, of uh, governance. You, um, they eagerly went in and said, well, yeah, we'll cut rates and we'll engage in QE and then, and then even more QE. So the, um, uh, essential problem is that we didn't have chairman who said to the legislature, look, you've got to invest in human capital. You've got to invest in infrastructure. You've got to prepare for climate change. Got to have a uh, functioning healthcare system. Um, you're not doing those things. And we, if, the, if we, at the, as a Federal Reserve, if we accommodate your reluctance to make tough decisions, work together, eliminate this insane partisanship, if we accommodate that by increasing the money supply and basically inflating assets, um, we will be participating in weakening the country in a material way, and we're not going to do that. If, if Bernanke had said that, if Yellen had said that, if Powell had said that, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in now. As it is, nobody said that, uh, nor did they say it in Europe, or nor, did they, or nor are they saying it in Japan. As a consequence, we are all at risk of having to uh, experience the uh, correction in all of these other areas in roughly the same time period. So this downturn is going to be uh, deeper uh, and longer than people now expect. Because in a way, the central objective of the downturn, its historic function, is to eliminate these previous um, ineffective decision-making processes, legislative processes, political processes, monetary policy process, and get, get these societies back on a sound footing again. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So, if I understand you correctly, um, you're describing a process of malinvestment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the Japanese had a malinvestment problem as well at the end of the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the Chinese have a massive malinvestment problem as well now. They put too much into real estate. Where, where is the malinvestment problem in the U.S. centered? 
If, if you were highlight, where, where do you think? What's, what's gone wrong? Well, we no doubt over-invested in housing. We have over-invested in all kinds of consumption activities and entertainment and things to fill up our homes. We probably are over-investing or not investing wisely in national security in much the same way that the Chinese over-invested in real estate and um, over-invested in trying to uh, alter the demographic composition of their population with the one-child policy. They have tremendous imbalances, demographic imbalances, uh, real estate uh, adjustment, healthcare system adjustment. We have enormous imbalances that we need to correct. It is absolutely the case that as a consequence of inequality, the high net worth households save more than they spend. They invest some, but the country is not investing. Uh, uh, We invest in, so to speak, financial assets, but we don't invest in the kinds of human capital and infrastructure and research uh, assets that would enable the economy to regain a productive strength and stability. Um, I would say that um, the malinvestment in the United States takes the form of those kinds of allocations of resources that continue to add to our wealth and income inequality. So if, if your hypothesis is correct, and it rings true to me, I mean, as I said, my glass is always half empty, so it's easy for me to believe someone's got a dire uh, forecast for how the future is going to be. Um, what would you expect to see? How would you expect the uh, financial markets to unfold over the next 12 to 18 months? Well, I expect um, the stock market will continue down. It's got all the, you know, kind of Elliott Wave uh uh, adjustments and counter trend rallies and and the rest to go through, but um, over the course of a two to three year period, uh, it'll eventually reach a bottom. Um, at that point, the political system will have recognized that there are enormous um, a range of things that were not done properly. Uh, you ask earlier, what are we investing in? In many instances, societies invest in things unintentionally. We don't have an an internal revenue service that can collect the taxes that uh, are on the books from a legal standpoint. So in other words, we're investing in the negative. We're investing in tax avoidance. We're investing in allowing people to uh, keep uh, 300, 400, $500 a year of taxes that should be paid they become basically sort of shadow criminals, but because we don't ever really put up, you know, enforce those laws, we're not exposing that, and we're not then encouraging the basically good people to actually pay taxes in the ways that they should. Um, so this is this is a kind of uh, finding that will become clear over the course of the next couple of years the uh, structural trap that we're in, the kind of political gridlock that we're in, uh, and the, uh, which is reflected in a kind of special interest control of the society, that will begin to fragment. And as it does, uh, new ways of doing things, productive ways of doing things will become clear. So one of the problems with 
this view uh, is there doesn't seem to be anything to buy. Um, <laughs> and it's whenever I talk to people and they, you know, on this subject and they say, what should I buy? And I say, well, cash is nice. What have you got against cash? They say that it's going down in value by about 8%, a process that we refer to as inflation uh, on an annual basis. Um, that's a problem, right? We are all trying to accumulate savings for what we hope will be long and, long and unproductive retirements. I am yes. so hoping to avoid greeting in Walmart. It's mm -hmm. an honourable job, but I, I really don't think I want to stand up on my feet that long. Is there no way of avoiding the inflation? Is inflation my friend? Is, what should oh, I do? I, I don't think that uh, actually in inflation is going to be a long-term problem. Uh, I believe that one of the what the inflation we have, the most serious inflation we have is asset price inflation. That inflation is going to be eliminated fairly quickly. Um, and pretty much right after it, in a in a whole in a world in which overproduction is the dominant characteristic, we have excess capacity to produce all kinds of goods and services, which people are, basically going to move away from demand is not going to be there. So those prices are going to fall. No, I think the the deeper problem um, will be the asset price deflation and its wealth effects on uh, important decision-making elements of the society, elements of governance, that's going to create enormous um, uncertainty. As far as what to invest in, um, I like being short stocks now. Uh, I will soon like being long bonds, treasury bonds, uh, because one of the things that is absolutely going to happen is that the Internal Revenue Service is going to get funded, and it's going to get funded in a way in which uh, taxes that are owed are actually paid, and that will increase government revenues anywhere from 100 to 200, 300 million dollars, billion dollars a year. And that will pretty much take care of any kind of uh, excess supply of government debt. So I think that, um, I think that uh, there are lots of things to buy. And, and I would like to say, uh, more than likely, education is a, a provision of quality education services, provision of quality infrastructure services, provision of energy uh, efficiency in all its forms. ESG, people, you know, wrestle with how to do it and, and, and solar panels, buy enormous amounts of them, buy the things that are used to make them. Um, because on the other side of the crisis we're in is energy from the sun in unlimited amounts. And that's going to enable societies to function, feed themselves, raise their populations, educate them um, at far, far lower cost than we now than is now done. Our, in a way, our, the biggest problem we've got to overcome is the special interest structure that is dedicated to continued use of carbon energy dependence. Well, there's a problem in the promised land that you. Uh, you flag up, uh, which is to get there will involve spending an awful lot of money and resources. Right now, um, the world's biggest producers of solar panels are in China, mm -hmm. and most of their production is, has some connection 
with Western China, uh, where there's a population, a majority population of Uyghurs. Yes. Um, and uh, currently, I believe the US has just imposed a law sanctioning any products that come from that part of the world. Um, I'm not sure how that law will be implemented, but if you're going to, where are you going to get the solar panels from if we're not going to get them from there? We got to get from here to there. Yes, we and do. Getting from getting once we're there, life will be great. But to get there, it doesn't sound like there'd be much consumption. We'll have to do without lots of things we got used to. Yes. Um, to transition to that new, improved, lower carbon, better world. Yes, I, I think that you know. You talked about the withdrawal of Russian uh, competition with the United States as being an inherently negative, competitive, uh, uh, removing a very stru structurally positive competitive presence. Um, a discipline, a discipline. Yes. Yeah. Well, right now, uh, we when we talk about conflict, we started off by talking about conflict in terms of what's happening um, uh, with Russia and Iran. And the alliance that's emerging there, we others people talk about uh, uh, Russia and China. A few years ago, there was an enormous uh, focus on pulling out of NATO. This was a Trump and conservative Republican objective to pull out of NATO, uh, get out of these alliances, and act, you know this was an important phase of the disaggregation. The disaggregation mm -hmm. is still way, but um, yeah. a key aspect of this is we then sanctioned the Russians. Uh, the sanctions are a form of modern warfare. We, in the same way we cut off uh, oil supplies to the Japanese in the 1930s, which made it absolutely necessary for them ultimately to attack Pearl Harbor. Yes. We have uh, engaged in sanctions which are affecting every country in the world small businesses in South Africa and all around the world that are interlinked with each other doing business in dollars have to be careful about whether or how they uh, get caught in the sanctions framework. So this, this sanctions uh, a weapon is an economic weapon of warfare. And we need to recognize that in an important way, World War III is already underway. And in the same way, that World War II resulted in enormous destruction in the regions where it was taking place. It's going to do the same this time again. And as you point out, there has to be, a, in a, even in a country in which there are not active military activities, there will be enormous sense of loss and, um, um, in a sense, economic devastation. Uh, in the United States as it goes through the changes that are necessary for it to, to get onto the other side of uh, this historic process. Yeah, I'm not sure when I'm next ordering the porterhouse. No. <laughs> That's right. now, I know that may not be everyone's idea of what's no, important, right. but different people have to. But um, yeah, the, the curious thing about the whole sanctions on Russia is – in the Second World War, the United States made it very difficult for the Japanese to obtain hydrocarbons. This time round, they made it very difficult for the Russians to sell hydrocarbons. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that was as well thought through as they might think. When I'm in the in the the Costco parking lot, I see a lot of uh, twelve. 
12 mile a gallon F-150s. Um, they're queuing up for the $450, $450 a litre gallon gasoline. Um, I don't think this country is acclimatised yet to higher hydrocarbon prices, and I think there's an awful lot of spending that would come with it. I told my wife I might be in the market for a truck on the grounds that maybe these prices will come down again, but I'm not exactly sure when. Oh, all those truck prices are going to come down. You're going to be able to get one. If you want one, you're going to be able to get it cheap. You kind of need to believe that gasoline prices will come down at some point in the future too, because 12 miles a gallon, so like I can only afford to get to the nearby Home Depot. I can't, yes. I can't go to the second and third furthest away one. Yes. Um, so ultimately, we're going to see stocks crash. Um, and stocks they're, they're, cra- they're doing it. They're doing they're it now. in the process, in the yes. process of repricing, and that's all good news for those of you who have a long time to requirement. For those of those of you like me who don't have so long to retirement, this is bad news. Mm-hmm. Um, the good news is that yields have gone up. Um, that means I can actually get a return on my money. Mm-hmm. You know, the bad news is inflation has gone up. You're telling me the inflation will go away. That makes bonds a bargain. Mm-hmm. Is 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 that the the bottom line that we should be buying bonds here, or shouldn't we be afraid that next year we'll see another eight percent inflation print as well? Because the war isn't going to go away. Uh, well, it, we have a tremendous amount of, so to speak, stimulus in the system. And even the Federal Reserve's QT schedule doesn't take out uh, much of that stimulus. It takes out a, 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 a relatively little. And if GDP falls, the relationship between the Fed balance sheet and GDP may actually go up. So the there may be actually a a, a, a a way of looking at it in which the stimulus is actually increasing because the GDP is falling faster than than the balance sheet. Now, savings is said to be in excess supply. Uh, Summers has said this. Many people have pointed out the savings glut problem. There are a lot of ways to get rid of it. You can tax it away, invest the money productivity product productively. Um, you can eliminate it simply because asset prices fall and people who thought they had savings actually don't have savings anymore. There will be a competition for savings globally in the course of the adjustments that's taking place. In a recent phone call, it was asked, do you really think that um, interest rates, because I had I had forecast in part of that discussion, that interest rates would still go up further. And they said, well, why is that? Uh, won't they come down? And I said, well, one of the reasons they might not is because the United States is is going to have to compete with all the other countries in the world for savings. Um, and if our governance structure is, is not functioning, and if the Federal Reserve has sort of um, taken the castor oil of becoming a disciplined central bank and it's not engaging in quantitative easing like it used to be, um, because it's fearful of inflation, what we would have is the United States has to compete for funds using real interest rates. If the dollar is rising, real interest rates can be down low or relatively low. If the dollar is falling relative to other countries, then real interest rates, the, the nominal value of real interest rates have to be much higher. So we get to see uh, 10-year rates much higher, a percentage point or two percentage points higher than they are now as this process gets underway and the United States has to compete with other countries around the world to extract savings from wherever it can to fund the activities 
that it's uh, that it needs to fund uh, pending pending the point in time when legislatures finally get their act together and begin to in- alter the economic structure of the United States into one in which resources are being allocated into those areas which actually enable the country to become productive again. So real rate increases are a, an integral part of the restructuring that the economy has to go through. Now, <clears throat> if we're in the midst of a true deflation, real rates may still be quite high. Yeah. Nominal rates may be coming down, but real rates are quite high. This was a case at, at, at different points during the, during the Depression of the 1930s. So in thinking about buying bonds, we need to – it is an enormously subtle and difficult decision as to how much and when. Uh, I expect we will see bond rates moderate. In other words, I, I, they may go up another percent or so. But ultimately, it's going to be the real component that is the issue. For nominal interest rate-focused individuals for retirement accounts or, or retirement funds, it'll the math will all work out. But in economic terms, real rates have to rise in order to force the economy to reshape itself in the ways that it needs to be done. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. And that's a pretty unpleasant environment for business. Right, this is not going to be the 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 CEO of Restoration Hardware made, became like uh, famous temporarily with some some hawkish comments about how bad inflation is going to be, and then he made some comments about how bad business was generally. Um, I thought the comments he made were just plain common sense, but the the stuff he was talking about, which is that the cost of everything we import from China is going up a lot. And the cost of everything we import from the Middle East has gone up a lot as well. The gist of those comments and uh, was just plain common sense. What what bothers me more is we have businesses which have factored in. We're trading on multiples, which imply that business will be where we were. Business would remain good. Yes. And yet we're now in what looks kind of, I guess I'd characterize it as a perfect storm mm-hmm. where everything that could go wrong is in the process of going wrong. And, you know, for the United States, it really isn't that bad. I mean, the United States is not adjacent to a hot war between two major European powers. Correct. So it, the United States has its own oil and gas. And if you don't have your own, you can always steal Canada and Mexico. So it's all good. Right, it's not not so difficult. Like they're going to complain. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem for Europe is enormous. Yes, and at the same time, you have a, a similar large scale problem in China. I can see why uh, President Xi is talking about the common prosperity because mm-hmm. if I was an average Chinese person who'd overpaid for an apartment right now in a second tier city, yes. I'd be hopping mad at the <laughs> loss of my re- my retirement nest egg. Mm-hmm. It's gone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so everyone has an incentive to compete for funds, to compete for global savings. And the only place there's any global savings is in the Middle East. Those guys have had this huge terms of trade improvement. Everybody else has had a terms of trade deterioration. 
Yes. You know, you've pointed that out in other phone calls, and you're right. I've been thinking a lot about that. This deterioration is very serious. Say more. You can, you can smell who's in trouble. Well, smell is the wrong phrase. But if you check out who's had the terms of trade shift against them, mm-hmm. that's who's got the problem. Yes. And uh, the reason why the Japanese yen is blowing up is because Japan's just had the mother of all terms of trade shifts against them. And you can either express that as a deterioration in the standard of living of your population. Sorry about this, everyone in the UK. Or <laughs> you can... Or you can you can uh, express it in some in your wealth, yeah. But it's going to come out. There's no way of hiding from it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Japanese now have a problem, a similar problem to the Europeans. If anything, the problem in the U.S. is the smallest of the problems. There's no the net terms of trade shift given the U.S. as an energy exporter is probably smaller than most places. The U.S. is not adjacent. Uh, to the Russian Federation, thank well, apart from in Alaska, and thank God it's not more, you know a significant significant problem now. And all over South America, I'm seeing political shifts. Yes, South America has turned into a, a hotbed of leftism. It's it's like the, the wet dream of the ex Soviet Union has come to pass now that the Soviet Union is no more and the Russia is a capitalist country. Yes, uh, it's astonishing to watch. And the, these countries that in, in Latin America that you're talking about are countries that on which advanced economies depend greatly for very specific uh, minerals that are necessary for high technology products. You know, uh, now that Russia is no longer our friend, which is a shame because the Russians, all they wanted to do is destroy their own people mm-hmm. and uh, spend a lot of time in the south of France. That's, I'm talking about the Russian elites, obviously. Yes. Um they're not our friend. There's a whole bunch of commodities that we can only get from either Africa mm-hmm. uh, or South America. Mm-hmm. Uh, lithium, for example, but there's others. Mm-hmm. Um, that, to my mind, means that those parts parts of Africa are likely to get quite violent. Yes. Uh, because if you want the cobalt, you have to secure the cobalt, and the cobalt's in a place which is tough to secure. Yes. So all of that bothers me a lot. But these are all side effects of the underlying problem, which is we've gone from a time when we had plenty of everything to a time when we don't. Yes. And uh, we still need to build up sea defenses in Florida. (laughs) I don't know how you fix Florida from global warming. Mm -hmm. Uh, We still need to build bridges that were first built in the 40s. Uh, They renovated the Pulaski Skyway in the tri-state area yet. I mean, God knows that, but I'm surprised it's still standing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and all we spent the money on was housing for the last 40 years. Everything was, was McMansions. Oh, it was, it was a terrible... There was an effort in the early 1990s by, I think, right-thinking people, including your humble servant, who tried to get the country to consider privatizing Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And the result was that anyone that was involved in that effort was frozen out of government by the succeeding Democratic and Republican uh, administrations. You were sort of blacklisted because you, you just didn't have, you know, have the faith in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. You, and, you were guilty of wrong think, wrong think, terrible crime. That's right. And now we know it would have been a blessing to have privatized those entities uh, 30 years ago 
We wouldn't have had the overexpansion, uh, over-reliance on consumption-led growth and ultimately housing-led growth. And even you saw in the last round, why in the world was the Federal Reserve engaging in mortgage purchases as part of its quantitative easing strategy? Housing was not a problem. It was an epidemic. Housing was not a problem. But for whatever reason, that was the reflexive, reflexive um, element of a rest. Who, who, who doesn't like higher house prices? Everybody who owns a house likes higher house prices. It's oh. only people who don't own houses that don't like it. And they, who do they vote for? Does yes. anyone care? No. Uh, the, the politically important portions of the population own homes and they like firmer house prices. No question about it. Yeah, it's all good. And, and lower beef prices. That's if, yes. and, yeah, ideally, with a, with a local Costco, if possible. So what can go wrong, Rob? So this is a, your diagnosis is apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. Um, I always like an apocalyptic diagnosis. We're going to see terrible markets. Uh, at some point, we're pivoting to long bonds. But being long bonds means you, see, you, you just bearish everything pretty much, give or take defense stocks. And climate stocks. And climate stocks, yeah. Now, if you're wrong, why are you wrong? How would you know if you're wrong? Well, I would know I'm wrong if, uh, first of all, the political system begins to actually function. Oh, we're, we're safe there, aren't we? I think we're pretty safe there, at least for a while. I would think I was wrong if uh, I began to see elements of uh, wealth being generated from sources that I had not previously noticed. In other words, there's some uh, sort of um, there's some sort of uh, product, magic product that uh, is being produced, and people I, buy I, it. I know what you're thinking of. You're thinking of fission, that they solve the fission problem, for example. Yes, that's right. They solve the fission problem. Uh, if they solve the fission problem, then uh, things get better uh, pretty quickly. But they're going to get better anyway because even cheaper than fission is simple sunlight. Yeah. So, um, uh, it, and even if you did solve fission, it would take you, you know, a decade, a decade and a half to before you could really get it into the energy framework. Because at this point, even if you solved it, it would be a, a very small capability. Um, yes, there's there's lots of areas where we can imagine wealth would emerge in terms of healthcare, in terms of learning. It might be that. We can uh, reform the education system. Everybody has broadband. We're able to educate kids and even socialize them in, in constructive ways. Um, we can solve a lot of these these kinds of problems. But at this point, I don't see that. I'm eager to see it because it's exactly where money should go. And I will be right in the front of investing in those things. I would like to invest in childcare. I'd like to invest in other forms of um, nutrition, um, early education. Um, at this point, that can only be done in a philanthropic way. It can't be done in a scale that uh, represents a commercial opportunity. Well, we're, we've, we've spoken for, actually, maybe we haven't. I'm not sure how long we've spoken for because we're a little late starting. Um, I was going to say, if people wanted to come across more of your work, to come across some of your something written by you, where would they do that? Well, there's an old um, international. Oh, there are a bunch of things in the um, Project Syndicate. I used to write uh, uh, items for Project Syndicate, 
Um, those focus mainly on off-balance sheet risk. In other words, you can look at the balance sheet of the United States, but if you don't have uh, reserves for climate change costs, then you've got an off-balance sheet obligation associated with climate change. And that changes the net worth picture of the United States very, very substantially. There are others under education, infrastructure, et cetera, which are all uh, off-balance sheet liabilities. So Project Syndicate, just Google my name and Project Syndicate, and you'll get a bunch of those op-eds. The um, original piece, which deals with the structural trap problem I described, is an international finance article I wrote with a brilliant economist by the name of Angel Ubide. He's um, in Washington, D.C. and uh, at the Peterson Institute. He's been in a variety of places. Uh, Goldman Sachs. And I've, I've seen his. I'm so old. I remember his work at Goldman Sachs. Yeah. Yes, he's he's a really remarkable guy. He and I wrote a paper uh, called "Structural Tra- Monetary Policy and Structural Traps," and that paper explained that in a structural trap, weak economy looks like a liquidity trap. You cut rates, but you don't get economic growth. You cut rates, you get don't get economic growth. It looks like a liquidity trap, but actually it's not. It's a structural trap. What's happened is the, the special interest framework of the economy, of the society, will not let the economy change its investment strategy and move it to a place where the economy is investing in ways which enable it to growth to be restored. Now, you know, I, I spent a couple of years, so you, I, I know I shouldn't talk about this, but I'll just, I'll just take a liberty anyway. Um, I spent a couple of years in Russia, a formative experience, one where I got very intimate and close to the Russian police forces. Mm. Um, for some reason, they could tell I wasn't Russian. I don't know why. <laughs> um, and uh, one of the things I noted, you know, and everyone notes this, if you spend time there, you note the corruption. There's corruption everywhere. As it happens, the more I spent time there, the more I realized the main difference between Russia and the West is not the amount of corruption, but their complete inability to hide the corruption that exists. They're not very good at hiding it, and they're not good at pretending um, that structural trap you describe, it doesn't seem 100 miles away from a corruption problem to me. Oh, no. It is just, a, it's just a disguised corruption problem. Mm-hmm. Individual interests mm-hmm. dominating public interests. Yes. yes. Um, for what little that's worth. It's absolutely on target. Um, in a way, the overinvestment in the housing sector in the United States, the preservation of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac as public entities and the guarantees they provided – uh, was uh, politically supported by what I would regard it as a corrupt process of political influence. So I suspect the biggest single reform needed for the United States is a political reform where medium and uh, mid-rank and slightly above mid-rank bureaucrats develop more of a spine and more civic-mindedness yes. and yes. demand higher yes. higher standards in public, public Agreed. life. Agreed. Prob- probably the single biggest reform that could change things. Yes. In the meantime, looks terrible for stocks, doesn't it? <laughs> right. Not good for stocks, no. <laughs> Rob, it's been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. Always. Thank you. Let's do it again sometime. I look forward to it. Call me anytime. Thanks, Harry. Have a good one. Bye bye. All right. That's a wrap on the next big trade. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, head over to realvision.com for financial insight you won't find anywhere else. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. 
Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.